those of you who are above a certain age, maybe about three, will probably know what I'm talking about. Have you ever noticed how the longer the dark time lasts, the more hopeless you begin to feel? The simple truth of the human condition is that it is, the, the, the harder it is to remember the lighter times in the past, the harder it becomes to imagine lighter times in the future. It's true, isn't it? The more hopeless you begin to feel. When you feel cut off, isolated and afraid because you can't quite see how the future is going to become any better, where it seems like the situation you're in has no end, no possibility of improvement. It's kind of ironic, I guess, that the darkest time in my life took place at about 11am on a sunny spring day. I'd spent a couple of months in hospital. I had surgery for an acoustic neuroma, so most of you will know this kind of part of my story. Hadn't gone particularly well, I mean, the, the, uh, the neuroma was removed, but things hadn't, hadn't gone perfectly, and I'd had at this stage two follow-up surgeries to fix the problem. And on this morning, I, w- I mean, I wasn't particularly in pain, I will admit, I was okay, aside from, you know, generally recovering from the anaesthetic, I was pretty okay but I was desperately homesick. I was in an isolated room because I was at an infection, a risk of being infected. So I didn't see all that many people and limited access and all that sort of stuff. And I just wanted to go home, be with my wife and kids. So at 11 o'clock on this sunny spring day, the doctor came in and said, I have the lab report and we haven't fixed the problem. You're going to have to stay here. And that's pretty, that's pretty tough news, it's pretty dark news. But then they said this, and we don't know what we're going to do next. We've never, this has never happened to anyone anywhere before, so we're not quite sure what to do next. We'll have to have a meeting about it, discuss it, and try and get back to you by tomorrow. Hopelessness descended around me like darkness. I couldn't see what the future held for me. I had this irrational fear that I'd be stuck in that hotel room for the rest of my life. Uh, hotel room, gee, I wish. <laughs> Actually, even if it was a hotel room, it was a pretty nice room. But I didn't want to stay there. Couldn't fight it. I couldn't fight it. And I was afraid. I was fortunate and I did have a limited number of visitors. My wife was able to come and see me. She wasn't infectious, which is good. People would send messages. And all of these messages were great. They were little points of light in the darkness. And I know many of you will have received texts and and things like that. Perhaps not as many as we all would like to have sent. You will know what I mean when you say they are points of light in a dark existence. You see, in the same way, Isaiah writes these words of encouragement and hope in the middle of darkness and despair experienced by the people of Jerusalem. And you know, every day in our community, we offer words of of hope along with little acts of kindness 
to alleviate people's dark circumstances. And that's great, wonderful. But Isaiah's message is spiritual. It's not just some surface level encouragement. He's very careful um, about the things that he chooses to refer to in history, in his message to them, and we'll look at that in a moment. His message is spiritual. It is not just about surface level hope in dark circumstances, it is deeper. It addresses a darkness of the soul that builds in those circumstances. Let me try and explain what I am talking about. So, for the ancient people of Israel, to whom Isaiah was writing there in Jerusalem, they were under siege. In fact, their king had done something really stupid and basically invited the Babylonians uh, in and uh, they had come and they were around Jerusalem, the people inside Jerusalem were starving, there was no demands, there was no understanding of how this was going to end. It did end and they, they were fine for another hundred or so years until Babylonian, Babylon just came and took them over again and, and wiped them out, basically, and took them into exile. But at this point, they are under siege. They have seen how the people in the north have uh, basically all been overrun. In fact, if you read later on in this chapter of Isaiah 9, there is reference to the fact that those living in darkness are eating each other. That's how hungry they are, that is how desperate they are. So, he is writing into these people and the interesting thing was, for these people of Israel, they interpreted everything that happened to them in life through the lens of their relationship with God. Simplistically speaking, if good things happened to them, they must have behaved well. If bad things happened to them, God must be punishing them. Everything they did was a result, or everything they experienced was a result of their own behavior and they were to blame. God's judgment or God's blessing was all down to how they behaved in life. And you know what? We look at this and we think it's a bit ridiculous, right? God doesn't work like that. But I have to admit, on that morning when I received a bad lab report saying the third surgery hadn't been successful, none of the team of doctors knew what to do next, I have to admit, I did ask myself, and I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, what have I done to deserve this? Or, or perhaps you're not so wordy, the question might be, why me? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Times in life, maybe when you're stuck, under siege, powerless to do anything about it, not sure what the future will hold, hungry, stuck, not sure if things will improve. And you ask yourself the question, what have I done to deserve this? They're dark, dark times, aren't they? They are situations and circumstances that result in a darkness of the soul. That is to whom Isaiah is writing and that is the reason for his writing. And that indeed is the reason why, 700 years later, when the birth of a baby is born in a manger, we look back and we say, that's what Isaiah was talking about. Research shows that people who suffer far more trauma than I have, people who suffer abuse and other horrific things have this same irrational tendency, multiplied, the same irrational tendency to blame themselves. 
the hurt, the humiliation, the shame is so great that the brain has to create a story of some sort to just process it in some way. And the way it does that is to turn itself on itself. And so often you hear stories of people who've suffered all sorts of horrific things and they they try and figure out how it was that they were to blame. And it's a story people carry. It's a curse they carry. It's a darkness of the soul. And it lasts long after the physical symptoms have gone. So you see how something we've experienced, whether it's a difficult medical experience or the horrific trauma of abuse, we have this rational tendency to believe that we are flawed, broken, unworthy of love and belonging from the universe, from God, from, from anyone. That's, that must be why the horrible is happening. We begin to believe that we are condemned to this life because of our brokenness and our unworthiness. We are condemned to this life of suffering, loneliness, disconnection and death. In Israel's case, they believed they were condemned to a life of exile, slavery, disconnection and pain. The universe has judged us unworthy, hopelessly condemned as a result. The the true power of Isaiah's message is only grasped when we understand the spiritual nature of the depth of hopelessness for the Israelite people, the true nature of the darkness experienced by them and by us. Because into the darkness of Israel, into the darkness of humanity, into the darkness of your life comes the message of Isaiah this Christmas. The people waiting in darkness have seen a great light, On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. You see these verses? I love them. Verse 3 speaks of the joy that we experience, as though we are victors in a battle, (laughs) dividing the plunder. And verse 5, every warrior's boot, a garment rolled in blood, will be thrown in the fire. It is a message of peace to come. But verse 4 is the hope verse for me. Verse 4 talks of the shattering of the yoke that burdens, the yoke that weighs heavily on the shoulders, the rod used by the oppressor to keep them oppressed. And see, this verse, verse 4, is paired with verse 6. They are the shoulders verses, if you like. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. That's interesting. Is he a dictator, socialist, anarchist? What kind of political science is this? (laughs) That's a bit different than that, isn't it? The burden of government put on the shoulders of the baby saviour, they are related. Government is about responsibility. It is about who to blame 
when things go wrong. I mean, we all blame the government when things go wrong, right? We still do that, and that's how Isaiah is, is placing this. What Isaiah is saying here is that there will come a time where all government, where all blame will be carried by the baby. Before Jesus came along, we were tempted to blame ourselves. I mean, we're still tempted to blame ourselves, aren't we? To, to carry some sort of responsibility for everything that happens to us. To ask ourselves the question, what have I done to deserve this? I mean, it's a ridiculous question, isn't it? What have I done to deserve this, whether it's a medical thing or an abuse or anything else? It presumes, even asking the question, presumes that there is an answer, which, of course, there isn't. What Isaiah is saying is there will come a time where this baby who dies on a cross once and for all is a sacrifice, forgiving anything and everything, demonstrating an unshakable, undeniable love for everyone, so that our inner monologue, that, that inner voice, that inner rod that we are oppressed with, says, I deserve this or I deserve that, is shattered. Instead, it's on Jesus. It's on His shoulders. And He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. You see, you can't undo what He's done. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from, from that time on and forever. We live in the forever, isn't that great? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus grew up. And He told a story once that illustrates the zeal of the Lord Almighty. You probably know it. There were two brothers. The younger brother says to his father, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance. And the father does. The younger brother goes off to enjoy his massive payday in the big city. Wine, women, food and friends. But he runs out of money. And there's a drought. And his friends desert him. But he gets a job feeding pigs. He even considers eating the pig food. He's so hungry. But no one is there to help him. He is destitute, deserted and desperate. It is hopeless and dark. He comes to his senses and he thinks about his dad. He says, well, he, he thinks about his father. You know, he basically disowned, disrespected and disappointed his father. And yet, he says, look, I'm going to go back to my father and beg to be taken on as one of the hired hands, as an employee or a slave. He figures that his father's employees at least get fed. But he's not sure that his father will even hire him. In his mind, it's a gamble. He tries to improve his chances by preparing a speech to give. A speech that says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I have sinned against heaven and against you. Against heaven, that's interesting, isn't it? Sure, the expenditure of all of his money is his fault. No denying that. He'll have to deal with that. Fine. 
The drought is not his fault. The desertion of his friends is not his fault. Sure, he could have chosen some better friends, probably. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer... Look at what is at the heart of this speech. I am no longer worthy. I may have been once, but not now and I never will be. Now, I'm not worthy. It's hopeless. But he begins walking, rehearsing his speech, I guess. (laughs) The father is on the lookout and he sees him. He sees the younger son returning in, in hopeless humiliation and shame. But he runs to him and he throws his arms around him. The boy gives his speech. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, etc., etc., etc. And the father ignores it. Some say it's a typical dad thing to do, right? Instead, he responds by calling the servants. He puts a robe, a ring, and some sandals on him. And he calls for a party. In Jesus' story, the father is God. And the simple truth that he illustrates is that whoever decides to come to God, no matter how unworthy they feel, no matter what has happened to them in life, no matter what they've done, no matter even if they spit in the face of God himself, if they come to God, they are restored. No questions, no speeches required, no shame accepted. The yoke on the back of the younger brother is broken. He is free from the rod that he uses to beat himself up with. Of course, this isn't actually the reason why Jesus tells this story. It has a much bigger lesson to teach us. And the main protagonist in this story is actually the the older brother. And that could be a story for another time, but... Turn to Luke chapter 15 if you want to hear and read the whole story. But it does show us this picture of ridiculous love that stands at the heart of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, His story. At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of God into the world. God born and put in a stinking feed trough in a shed because His parents were homeless. God born to a 14-year-old unwed peasant girl. We, we celebrate the birth of Jesus because He experienced all that there is to human existence from birth all the way to death. He experienced the darkness. He experienced the pain. He did also experience joy and laughter and curiosity and longing and all those sorts of things. He experienced all there is to human existence. And then he died for all of us. He still says, you're worthy, every single one of you. And he still says, you are worthy to each and every one of us. You aren't finished, you aren't done, there's no closed door, it's not as hopeless as you might think. In fact, there won't even be an end to your life. May that hope drive you this Christmas. May you celebrate the Saviour with us. I wonder if you would sing with me a song.
as we finish our time and reflect here for a moment is a song I assume you know. It's called Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Would you stand with me? Would you stand and sing Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, one who understands and feels that brokenness and the darkness and yet there is the grace of God that says you are worthy. You have hope. You have a future.